0: This morning's message is entitled, A Lesson from the Man of Sorrows, and we're going to carry on through Hebrews. Um, I'll be honest with you, this morning I'm going to stick pretty close to the paper, and the reason is, is because um, there's a lot of papers, and if I go off track too much, um, we are going to get hungry. (laughs) And uh, But actually, the the truth is, I'm going to stick pretty close to it because um, I I spent a lot of time um, trying to use the correct language. You know, language matters. Uh, How we speak matters. Words that we choose, words that we write really, really matter. And um, that is seen uh, as uh, very evident today when you have individuals who say off the cuff on social media and things like that, things that they don't really mean or that they do mean, but they meant in sort of a time of anger or a time of excitement, and they just kind of say the first thing that comes uh, to their lips, and uh, that's not always the wisest thing for us to do. And so it's the same with pastors. Sometimes we get excited when we preach, and we get carried away in it, and sometimes we say something maybe not as careful as we'd like. And so today I want to make sure that I'm as careful as I possibly can. That has nothing to do with the message today except to say that if it sounds like I am reading more than typical, it's because of that. But this morning you've already heard Christy speak to us or read to us uh, the passage from Hebrews chapter 1 through 10. I'm going to focus in on chapters 5 verses 7 through 10 as we uh, and, and I thought a lot about a t- this title today, and I will tell you that I don't give much regard for titles of sermons, really. Um, I try to make them somewhat uh, catchy and somewhat descriptive of what we're talking about. Today I did. Uh, for this morning, I thought quite a bit about what I would entitle this message, and that's why I entitled it A Lesson from the Man of Sorrows, because Christ, while on earth, one of the prominent things that He did was He taught. He taught. He taught a small band of individuals that followed Him, His roadies, if you will, His disciples. And He taught them, and He taught them well, and He spent time with them. Uh, in, our, in, our, in our church culture today, we spend so much time uh, focusing on size and growth and those sorts of things. And those things are important uh, that sometimes discipleship and close knit relationships and fellowship gets lost in the in the in the melu. And so, uh, so what I want to do is uh, is I want to I want to spend some time looking at this lesson that Jesus uh, has taught us through um, the book of Hebrews here. And so that's where we're going to jump in this morning. And so uh, to begin, just an introduction. I want to talk about sovereignty sovereignty, God's sovereignty, and suffering. And so to be human, to be human, oftentimes we think, what does that actually mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? To be human in a broken world is to suffer. That's just that's just the truth. To be human in a broken world is to suffer. Now, many of you all are thinking, I, I've, I've lived 40, 50, 60, 70 years, and honestly, I don't feel like I've suffered much. I don't feel like I've suffered much. I've, I've been sad. And in fact, that's the second point. To be human in a broken world is to know sorrow. It is. In fact, I don't know that I've ever met an individual. And I don't, And when I say sorrow, I don't mean just sadness. I mean a deep-seated sorrow to the depths of your soul that almost causes pain Many individuals have felt that, and oftentimes when we think about it, we think, well, I've not really suffered in the way that that you may be describing. That That may be the case, and that's because where we live, we have been insulated from a lot of that. We've been insulated from a lot of suffering, but please note that there are a lot of brothers and sisters, not just around the globe, that's true, but also in your vicinity who have suffered greatly, and many of them have suffered and dealt with sorrow in silence. And if you felt like, feel like you have not suffered or had found sorrow in your life, be patient because the likelihood is that it will come. It will come. Often our suffering and sorrow is a consequence, a consequence of our sin or the consequences of someone else's sin. And at other times, suffering is a byproduct of events that to our finite human minds appear random. So the suffering or the sorrow, it just seems to happen, Right? Natural disasters, disease, a blown tire, a weak vessel can lead to suffering and to sorrow. So are you still with me here? That's just the truth of being human, okay? Now, I, I promise we're on a downhill swing right now emotionally. We're going to kick it up a notch, all right? We're going to go up that hill, all right? So don't, don't, don't worry about it too much just yet. But let's just look at a human view, a humanistic view of suffering. A humanistic view of suffering and sorrow is both shallow and superficial, So a humanistic view, not a biblical view, not a Christian view, but a humanistic view of suffering and sorrow is shallow and superficial. And the reason I mention this is because far too often Christians, devout Christians, end up leaning into this humanistic view. What is the humanistic view? It's the feeling or the experience of suffering and sorrow. And it's a response to our human narcissism that was randomly crafted over millions of years through evolutionary survival of the fittest. Now, what, that seems really broad, and what does that even mean? What's this? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That's kind of, that's kind of this humanistic view, right? And so we're going we're gonna to use it to uh, better ourselves or we're just going to kind of pout uh, in our lives. That's sort of a humanistic view. It's very narcissistic. It's very self-seeking. And if I were a betting man this morning, I would wager that some of you this morning are feeling some level of sorrow in your life. The loss of a loved one or just a a season in life, especially the season that we're in right now, can, can help culture, indoctrinate this feeling of sorrow. And I would wager that some of us, maybe silently, are dealing with some level of suffering right now. The level to where Something's going on in your life that really pangs you and it's causing you to wonder what exactly am I going to do? I I don't know exactly what I'm going to do. As depressing as this sounds, there is a diamond in this mound of rough. And that diamond is that our suffering does have a purpose. Our suffering has a purpose. It is not without purpose. It is not without cause. You've heard me say that before. That's nothing new. Our sorrow is not without direction because God is sovereign over every minuscule point of it. Every bit of suffering, every bit of sorrow that we experience in our life, God is sovereign over all of it. He's not ignorant of it. He's not without power over it. He is completely sovereign over it. Now, if you don't believe that this morning, then I feel you, feel for you. Because that means that your sorrow and your suffering has no purpose and it is completely random, which means that it's just kind of there and there's no way to make heads or tails out of it. But if God is sovereign over sorrow and suffering, that can give us hope as a believer in Christ. It gives us something to look to. It gives us something to look forward. So last week, we looked at how Jesus was the perfect high priest, necessary for the permanent removal of sin, because Jesus can sympathize with our weakness, right? Jesus can sympathize with our weakness because he knows temptation, yet never sinned, and he can rightly serve as the high priest and sacrifice. And so the author is going to continue this train of thought through the first six verses, of chapter 5. Now, Christie's already read those to you. I'm not going to reread them, but I do want to make three points from those verses very quickly. The first point that the author makes in those first six verses is that he sets out to confirm what we have already discussed, that the prototypical high priest is not only sacrificing for the sin of the people, but he is also sacrificing for himself. We see that in the first four verses. The second point He points out the truth that just as the high priest in the Old Testament was appointed by God, so was Jesus. So the Old Old Testament high priest was not elected like we elected an, uh, an official in our government. The high priest coming from the Levites was appointed by God. And so was Jesus. Jesus being the son of God, the man of sorrows, was appointed by God to be the final, the eternal high priest in whom we worship. And finally, in verse 6, before we take off into our passage this morning, he draws our attention back to this curious figure, a priest and king named Melchizedek, to highlight the sovereignty of God in his selection. Now, folks, The reason why I say a curious individual is that he's really only mentioned twice in the Old Testament before we get to the New Testament. Melchizedek, and I've already said this once, but I'll I'll describe since it's been a little while, Melchizedek was both a high priest and a king of an area called Salem. He was not of the tribe of the Levites, which is very awkward because the majority, in fact, all of, the le- all of our high priests in the Old Testament come from that line. But Melchizedek was not. And so this secures the notion that God is sovereign over the selection of the individual who serves in the priestly role. So it's not just, well, I'm a Levite, so I'm automatically a priest. God is still in control even of that. Why does that even matter? Because Jesus also was not a Levite. He was not. He was from the tribe of Judah. Yet he is the final high priest. And so we've seen it before, if you will, in the New Testament. Well, Jesus is not of the line of Levite. How can he be a high priest? Well, Melchizedek was as well. And so he's continuing that train of thought, demonstrating that God's sovereign purposes will be accomplished. So... Whereas in chapters 1 through 3 of Hebrews demonstrated the divinity of Christ, chapters 4 and 5 will highlight His humanity. And nothing is more evident than in today's verses where we're going to observe the suffering and sorrow of the Son of Man or the Man of Sorrow. So like us, Christ's suffering and sorrow was not without purpose. And that's what we're going to see. And that purpose is God glorifying and to our benefit all the way through. And so I want to raise four points and I'm going to try to move through these pretty quickly, before. And every one of these points is going to have a bit of application. So I want you to really tune in here because I think that it is exceptionally critical for us for our walk with Christ. So we're going to begin in chapter seven, or chapter five, starting in verse seven, in the first half of this. And so the first is this: we're going to look at the prayers from the man of sorrow. What does it say here in uh, verse seven? In the days of his flesh. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. So let's just look at that line first that Jesus raised up prayers or offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Now, understanding the person of Christ is not an easy task and is far too difficult to try for to us for us to tackle here. But we do need to have some understanding of the person and the nature of Christ. And I will tell you that the concept of the Trinity is easier for me to wrap my head around than the person of Christ and his two natures. I'll just be honest with you, okay? I'm not saying that I understand the Trinity, okay, in the depths. What I mean is that. I can comprehend it. I can get it. It it sits easier in my logic than this idea of Christ being fully human and fully God. Now, I believe it 100%. I have no issue with the doctrine, but wrapping my mind around it, sometimes just just causes me just to go batty. And it did while I was working on this passage. I was was like, how does this work? Because I'm I'm a science guy. I want to know the mechanism, right? I want to know how those things work. You know, I guarantee you, Jerry is the same sort of way. You want to know how things work, right, Jerry? Jerry's always taking things apart and putting them back together, right? And they're always more beautiful than when they began, right? There you go, Jerry. Okay, so here's the deal, okay, is that Christ has this two-natured concept, and the first is this, is that Jesus is 100% God. Now, let me describe what that means, because that matters for this passage. We've already seen at length, all right, at length in Hebrews 1-3, or through chapters 1-3, through but especially in 1-3, that The author here demonstrates that Jesus was not partly God, but was the exact imprint of God's nature. Now, what does that mean? It means that Jesus had all the features of God, all the nature of God. Jesus' divine nature was omnipotent, sovereign, and omniscient, and other things. All right, we could go beyond that, but there's other things. So Jesus was 100% God. It is right to call Jesus God. And just so you know, there were some contemporaries of the author that did not like this. In early Christendom, there were a couple heresies like Adoptionism and Arianism. And they refuted this claim that Jesus was 100% God. They believed that he was merely human. He was merely human and that God adopted him, if you will, as his son. But then the other nature is that Jesus is 100% human. And it says here, in 1 John 4, 2, by this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And so it is, it is a mandatory concept that we understand that Jesus is not just 100% God, but that he was 100% human. In fact, John says that individuals who deny the humanity of Christ or the antichrist, we must believe this. This means that Jesus had all the characteristics of humanity. Jesus hungered, thirst, had emotions, grew in stature, obedience, and knowledge. And there were a few heresies at the time that denied this. Docetism, Gnosticism, which many of you all have heard, Apollinarianism. All of them denied the idea that Jesus was human at all. He just looked human. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that he was 100% human. Now, how do we wrap our minds around this? Well, to be honest with you, it's exceptionally difficult to wrap our minds around it. All right, we just believe it. So this is why the author emphasizes in the days of his flesh. Here the author is highlighting the humanity of Jesus in both his distress and his dependence upon God. Let's listen to this again. In the days of his flesh. So looking at Jesus in the flesh, incarnate, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. That sounds human to me. That sounds like something I've seen when I was in Haiti, and we were worshiping, and the power was off because they turned the power off in Port-au-Prince for uh, much of the day to save money and to save energy. So we're worshiping in the dark, and there's people with flashlights, and when you look around with flashlights, there are people laying uh, prostrate on the ground, face first on the ground, worshiping the Lord in tears, crying out, to God it's very human and so Jesus is displaying this the author is is revealing the distress of Christ and his dependence upon God. And so likely what he's thinking of are three different passages. Number one, the passage, and two of them are the same story. It's the story in Matthew and Luke of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Now I'm not gonna go through that. I'm not gonna read it. You all know this story, but Jesus goes, this is close to the time where he's gonna be crucified. He's in great agony. The word of God says that Jesus is in agony. In Luke, we even see that he's sweating drops of blood because of his agony. And he is praying, he is petitioning to God, saying, if you would take this cup from me, but it be your will, not mine. Let your will be accomplished here, Lord. And so he's praying for this in the garden, right? Right? And he says here, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. This is what he says to the disciples. And then his prayer to the father, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then like I said, in Luke 22, we see something very similar. And we can go even to John chapter 17, which is one of my favorite passages in all of scripture, where Jesus is praying what we have rightly called a high priestly prayer. If you read that passage, that chapter, we don't have time for it this morning, but go back and read that chapter. Jesus is enacting a prayer to the Father, mediating on behalf of his disciples and us. He is serving as our great high priest in that role, praying to the Father on our behalf. In the Old Testament, the high priest was not elected by the people, but was rather chosen by God from the people so that he could resonate and relate relate with the people he was mediating for. And likewise, Jesus, God in the flesh, was also human. And while he was not stained with sin, he could still understand our plight, as we discussed last week. But because of his human nature... Because of this human nature of Jesus that is on full display, what we see is that Jesus completely and fully depended upon the Father. Completely depended upon the Father. Now, if Jesus was just 100% God, would He need to demonstrate that dependence upon a Father? But because He is also human, like us in that way, He is demonstrating His dependence says, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. It sounds exceptionally human. Now, what is the application for us? As we are faced with suffering and sorrow, if the Son of God... Now, I want you to think about this. I want you to think really carefully about this. When we are faced with suffering, with sorrow, and with trials... If the Son of God was willing and able to cry out to the Father with loud cries, in tears, in supplication and prayer, what prevents us from doing the same? What prevents us from doing the same? In fact, one of the definitions of supplication is begging, it's this begging of the Father. Begging that His will would be accomplished. When is the last time we approached the Father through the high priest Jesus with loud cries and tears? When is the last time that we've approached the Father through Jesus with such utter dependence that it brought us to our knees? The need Is great. The problem is we don't recognize the need. The second is an answer. We see answers from the Father. It says in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. And the Father answers. But before we look at what He answered, I want to look at why. It says that the Father heard because of His, Jesus, reference. And that's at the end of verse 7. Now, what does that mean, reverence? Now, oftentimes when we think of reverence, we think of the word respect. We think that, that Jesus was giving respect or that Jesus was, it was fearing. Sometimes reverence comes along with the word fear. But the truth is that most commentators believe that the author is denoting a type of awe or wonder. That Jesus was approaching that when he came before the Father, this is the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Man of Sorrows, that when he comes before the Father, he does not come before the Father flippantly. He comes before the Father in awe and in wonder. That's how we approach the Father. Jesus' disposition is one of complete dependence because He understands the awesomeness of the one to whom He is praying. This is the Son of God we're talking about. And He is still coming before the Lord with this awe and wonder When we come to the Father flippantly, without regard to every aspect of His divine nature, we are not demonstrating reverence. At best, we are demonstrating entitlement. Father, give me that. In fact, it sometimes sounds like a small child. Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, right? Why? Because I deserve it. I've earned it. Blah, 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 blah. It's flippant. That's at best. At worst, we're demonstrating unbelief. And I'm going to tell you, folks, I please don't think that I'm just preaching to you all. Because as I was writing this, I wanted to stop writing it because it was convicting. To me, it was con- so convicting. Far too often, whether it's before a meal or before bed or some under-my-breath petition, I come before God, the God of the universe, out of some nominal habit rather than all like wonder. My prayer for us as a congregation and as a church globally is that the everyday Christian would repent of their flippant nominal approach to the Father of the universe, the God of the universe and His Son and the Holy Spirit, and that instead that we would be brought to our knees either physically or metaphorically, all right? And come before God in awe and wonder. Because it says that Jesus was answered in part because of his reverence. It says Jesus prayed to him, to him who was able to save him from death. So he heard him because of his reverence and then he answered him. What was the answer? It says here, to him who was able to save him from death. The Father did what? He saved Jesus from death. Now, does that raise a question? Was the author of Hebrews wrong? Well, the author is not wrong. And God did answer Jesus' prayer. God did save Jesus from death. But let me explain the Father saved Jesus from death through the resurrection. Meaning that Jesus still had to suffer and die. He had to. That was foreordained. It was predetermined. It was planned before the foundations of the earth that Jesus would have to go and suffer and die. He is the man of sorrows. But for our sake, for our sake, being determined before the foundations of the earth, Jesus did not have to endure that death for eternity. Jesus was saved from death in that respect. Now, folks, I want you to imagine something, just as application. If the Father, just think hypothetically now, if the Father prevents Jesus from dying, then the perfect sacrifice is never made and we stand condemned. So if the Father answers Jesus' prayer the way we would want Jesus to, or God to answer our prayer, Not just to save us from eternal death, but to save me from dying. I don't want to die right now. If the Father grants Jesus' petition in that way, then we still are condemned. Then Jesus is not the sacrifice, the final sacrifice. Likewise, if the Father does not answer Jesus' prayer at all and raise Him from the dead, then death is not defeated, Christ does not reign, and we still stand condemned. So if, if the Father answers his prayer the way we would want him to answer the prayer, or if he refuses answer to answer the prayer, then we stand condemned. Our salvation is dependent upon the suffering of Christ as well as the Father answering the prayers of Christ. So what does that mean for us? It means there is purpose in the suffering and there is power in prayer, which goes to point three. That there is obedience learned. And this is the trickiest one for us to follow. Because honestly, we don't like hard lessons, do we? We don't like difficult lessons. I think many of us would like to pretend that we're in the matrix and just get kind of plugged into a computer and learn everything we need to know. But that's not the way life is. The death of Christ and our salvation was not the only purpose in the suffering of the man of sorrows. It says here in verse 8, it says, "...although he was a son..." he learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned obedience from what he suffered. Now, catch me here. How does Jesus, the Son of God, learn anything? Doesn't he already know anything? Everything. Well, we've said already that Jesus was fully human in that he felt pain, he felt sickness, hunger, thirst, But we also see, especially in the beginning of Luke, that he grew in wisdom, knowledge, and now in Hebrews, grew in obedience. So does this mean that Christ was a sinner until he learned to obey? Because that's often what it means for us. It means that we learn to obey because we first sinned or made a mistake, we get corrected in that, and therefore we've learned obedience through it, right? I mean, that's why we... Pop our kids on the rear end, right? We're teaching them obedience. So did Jesus have to sin in order to learn obedience? Absolutely not. Jesus was without sin, but he did learn obedience. Jesus, through all of his trials, as he was walking through life, through all of his trials and tribulations, was learning to suffer in obedience. It was preparing him for that moment on Calvary. And Paul describes it like this in Philippians 2.8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Every step that Jesus was taking was preparing him for this last step that he would take up to the hill of Calvary. And his obedience carried him all the way to the cross. And again, this is demonstrating Jesus' full humanity. Paul tells us that Christ's submission to God's will and perfect obedience led to the grave. But it also led to our salvation and the purpose for which Christ came, which is this, that Christ came to save sinners. That's why he came in 1 Timothy 1.15. Now, how do we answer this for ourselves? It's this. We are not born with the ability to obey. We're not born with that ability. Rather, for us, we are born with the depraved desire to disobey. I was listening to National Geographic um, uh, Overheard, I believe. is what It's a podcast through National Geographic. It's a bunch of nerdy science stuff. I love it. And as I was listening to it, one of the uh, fellows that was on there was talking about lying. He was talking about lying, especially in children at the age to which children lie. And for the longest time, it was believed that children did not lie until they were about seven, eight, nine years old. Now, if you are a parent, you know that the scientists are dead wrong. Okay? But what they would say is they're not really lying, they just misunderstood and stuff like that. Well, this expert on lies says, no, 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 no. We can go back and track that the first lies are between ages 2 and 3. Remember the terrible twos the terrible threes? There you go. Okay. We are born not with the ability to obey Christ perfectly, but rather with the depraved desire to disobey. Rarely, rarely do we seek to learn greater obedience from our trials. So when we come before a trial... We're faced with a trial when we're suffering, when we face sorrow. Rarely are we trying to seek to learn obedience through that. But instead, what are we doing? We learn to pout. That's what we do. And folks, adults are just as good at pouting as children. And you know that. Even if you wouldn't admit it, you know it's true. If the perfect Son of God, man of sorrows, can learn obedience through suffering, cannot we? Learn. Obedience. So often, out of fear and out of pain of discomfort, we are trying to avoid suffering at all cost. At all cost. And what happens is we miss out on the reward that is ahead of us. If Christ had tried to avoid suffering at all cost, we would still stand condemned. So this leads us into our final point this morning. And it's this. Salvation for all who obey. What was the reward? And we see that in verse 9-10. I'm going to read 7-10 through 10 again. In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverence. Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. And being made perfect... He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And being perfected through this suffering, Christ became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. So really quickly, I want to walk through that one phrase about Jesus being made perfect. Now, I think if we, if we had a, did a survey in here, every one of us would raise our hand and say that Jesus has always been perfect, right? That Jesus was without sin. Jesus never committed a, a wrong or anything like that. Nothing sinful, right? That Jesus was perfect. What the author is doing here is he's revealing Christ's perfect obedience all the way to the cross, which was a prerequisite for our salvation. So in other words, had Christ failed, he would not have been the perfect sacrifice, but he did not fail. He was perfect. So Christ was being made perfect through his sacrifice is that Christ was the perfect substitute. He was the perfect sacrifice, but it did not become perfect until it occurred, right? It didn't, it, it's not perfect until it happens, If I could put it kind of crassly, all right, you don't get 100% on an exam until you what? Take the exam. Then only is it perfect. So Christ was being made perfect through His obedience. So let's finish up here. Because of this perfection, because of His obedience, we have a means to be saved. We have a means to be saved. And like we've already demonstrated again and again, Obedience to Christ is not a recommendation. We've said that before. I want to say it again. Obedience to Christ is not a recommendation. It is an obligation. And the author here in this passage is not suggesting that our obedience is what earns us salvation. It says here, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The author is not saying that we are earning salvation through that. Rather, our obedience is the evidence that we have seen, that we have been saved by Christ. Or in other words, Christ's obedience begets our obedience. So, I want to wrap all this up in one nice little bow. And I want you to to focus on this last moment here. In order for Christ to avoid suffering, sorrow, pain, and turmoil, he would have had to avoid obedience. That's what would have had to happen because obedience was going to lead him to those things necessarily. Obedience led Jesus to the grave. And so we see that there was purpose in the man of sorrows and his suffering. And there is purpose in your suffering too. Now, here's the deal. We don't like that. We don't like to hear that. People do not like to hear that. I'm going to tell you right now, it is really hard to build a massive flock of congregation on the idea that suffering that suffering is sometimes necessary. People don't like to hear that. Folks, I'm going to tell you, and I'm not changing this message because it's the Bible... But if we keep preaching, you're not going to have thousands of people breaking down this door. That's not what's going to happen because people don't like to be told that. Now, here's a way that we could do it. Let me tell you how we could change things up, all right, and get a flock of people. Here's how we do it, okay? This is how you do it. We could peddle cotton candy Jesus. That's what we could do. We could pedal cotton candy Jesus, or we could, you know, we, we could pedal this hippie Jesus, you know, this all you need is love Jesus, or I can live in sin and Jesus will still love me, Jesus, or my personal favorite, the mosh pit Jesus. You know what I mean? Jesus up on a stage, he's got a crowd before him that he's pedaled to, and he jumps backwards into the crowd, and people are just, he's just crowd surfing, Right? all right? Crowd surfing, then all of a sudden there's this big mosh pit right in the middle. That's mosh pit Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the Bible though, but to build a crowd. Stadiums are filled with people looking for cotton candy Jesus. Nobody in the world wants a Jesus who bled agonizing beads of sweat as he cried out to the Father. No one in the world wants a Jesus who turned the other cheek. No one wants a Jesus who was beaten until he was unrecognizable, torn until naked, nailed to a cross, and buried in a tomb. Nobody wants a perfectly obedient unto death Jesus. Because that Jesus looks just too human. That Jesus is not engaging to our sinful desires enough. That kind of Jesus that I just described requires sacrifice, humility, suffering, and sorrow. That kind of Jesus, the Bible's Jesus, requires you to love Him so much. Listen to this. Moms and dads, grandparents, everybody. This kind of Jesus requires you to love Him so much that loving your parents or your kids or your spouse looks like hatred. That's what Luke says. Luke says that if you love Christ the way that He calls us to love Him, that loving your parents and your kids looks like hatred in comparison. That kind of Jesus requires you to sacrifice your time, your comfort, and your money. Loving that kind of Jesus means that you can't look like the world. You may not be able to give your kids everything that they want because you are too busy supplying the one who can give them everything that they need. And folks, I'm guilty of this one. Because I want to make my children happy, right? I want to make them happy. And so I want to give them things that make them happy. But most of that stuff is going to burn in the end. What we need to be giving our children is Jesus. Nobody wants this kind of Jesus until they're dead. Until they're dead. That's when everybody wants that kind of Jesus. Because after they're dead, they're kneeling. And guess who they're kneeling before? Jesus. Jesus. The problem is, now it's too late. Now it's too late. So instead of wallowing in suffering and sorrow, blaming God or blaming neighbors... We need to learn a lesson from the man of sorrows. Pray that God would both remove the pain if it's in his will and that he would use the pain and sorrow for his glory. You see how Christ prayed in the garden? If possible, remove this cup from me, but not my will be done, but yours. May your will be done. Folks, let's not wait until we are dead or almost dead or until tomorrow to love and obey Christ as He is called and demonstrated for us to love and obey Him. Let us, instead of approaching the Father through Christ flippantly with entitlement and unbelief, let's approach Christ approach the Father in awe and wonder. Instead of approaching our Sunday morning worship services as an activity to be completed, let's look at it as a corporate opportunity to worship the God of the heavens and to celebrate and to lean on one another. We are not in this alone. We are not in this alone. I know it feels like it right now. I know it feels like it, but we're not. God is still in control. God is still sovereign. God is still worthy of our praise. And you may be saying, I do all of these things. I don't, but maybe you do. That's perfectly fine. It is likely that someone near and dear to you does not. So love them by showing them the truth. Encourage them. Hook your arm in their arm and drag them with you. Drag them with you so that they can encounter the true God of the Bible, not Hollywood Jesus. Hollywood Jesus won't save you. I'm done. I'm going to pray. And my prayer this morning is that every one of us, every one of us would be convicted, if need be, of lackluster worship and devotion to Christ. I am not denying that it is difficult. It is difficult, especially right now. It is not easy to give your everything to Christ. But he did not ask for partial, he asked for all of it. Let's do that as a congregation. Let's do that as a congregation.